new if you lived in Philadelphia, unless you do not, that's an Italian expression for stupid. Unless you're stupid, you knew that a lot of people were coming over from Camden to vote. They do every year. Happens all the time in Philly. It's about as frequent as getting beaten up at a Philadelphia Eagle basketball, uh, football game. Happens all the time. All the time. What they swear to is that at 4.30 in the morning, a truck pulled up to the Detroit center where they were counting ballots. The people thought it was food, so they all ran to the truck. It wasn't food. It was thousands and thousands of ballots. Did you all watch My Cousin Vinny? You know the movie? It's one of my favorite of uh, all movies because he comes from Brooklyn. And uh, when the, the nice lady who said she saw, and then he, uh, he says to her, how many fingers do I, how many fingers do I got up? Welcome to the Progressive Southern Theologians podcast, a show where two progressive theologians working in the South gather and discuss matters of faith, politics, and other social issues. I'm Mark Boswell, and I'm joined as always by my friend and co-host, Jamie McLeod. Jamie, welcome in today. How are things for you in the state of Alabama? Mark, things are lovely today. The, you know, we got cooler weather in the morning, so I can cut on my fireplace, and warmer weather in the afternoon, which means I don't have to wear a sweater. So, you know, it's, it's all, all in all, it's a good day today. That sounds lovely. Uh, today, dear listeners, we are doubling back to a topic from last week's show, but that we did not get a chance to discuss at length. Uh, as we unpacked election results, uh, we, along with many progressives across the country, were disheartened and amazed at the historically high numbers of voters who turned out, yes, but who also turned out for Trump. Uh, we'll get into a conversation of what to make of this and what it means for the GOP and also for the conservative evangelical church. In our second segment, we'll turn our attention to a broader theme of what uh, this high support for Trump means for President-elect Joe Biden and his administration, given Biden's talk of unifying the country. We'll also consider uh, whether that's possible, what it might look like, uh, and we'll talk more about what the, the future holds for the GOP uh, in light of Trump and what his presence might be like over the next several years. As always, we'll bless someone's heart between our first and second segments, and we'll close out our show with our regular front porch musings. Before we begin today, we'd like to ask that if you enjoy this podcast, to please rank and subscribe to the show in your podcast app of choice. Doing so will help others to find our work, and we certainly appreciate that. And if you want to read more of our written work, please visit our website, ProgressiveSouthernTheologians.com, and also check us out on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you all for being with us this week. Jamie, in our first segment, as mentioned, we want to dive into the implication of the election results. But before we do, can you update us on some of the developments over the last few days? Uh, let's start with the Trump team in general and what uh, some of the claims they continue to make about voter fraud and if there's anything newsworthy about legislative action or judicial action they're trying to take. Well, those are two separate questions. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, right. So they continue to spearheaded by legal genius Rudy Giuliani to uh, <laughs> to sow seeds of doubt sort of in press conferences, but not really in legal cases. In most legal cases where lawyers are required to tell the truth, they pretty quickly back off of any claims of, of voter fraud, especially those claims that they have no way of proving. Uh, so the last week has brought you know, more is the previous week. It's been a lot of cases brought forward that have been summarily dismissed almost out of hand without much argument. Uh, so there is that side of it. On the other side, they have taken to, I almost want to say a PR campaign where they're trying to continue to motivate the Trump voters and I think convince the Trump voters that the Biden victory was illegitimate for whatever number of reasons, including voting machine errors and illegal votes and hundreds of thousands, if not millions of votes that ought to be thrown out. And yesterday, Rudy Giuliani included in that argument that he was going to be now challenging the results in Virginia, where I think Biden won by 15 points. So there really seems there really seems little into this charade and this mockery, but it is effective in one sense in that it has 
I think the number I saw was 70% of Trump voters are, are convinced that, uh, that, that Biden won this election through deception and through fraud, and so is really quite illegitimate in his, his being titled president-elect and, and in wanting to begin the transition. I think that, uh, by and large, this is just going to be a PR campaign moving forward, and that's, that's kind of where we are now. Yeah, well, I appreciate you drawing out that distinction between the, the PR aspect of it and the and what's actually happening in some of the legal um, attempts that are being made. Because to unfortunately, to the credit of the Trump team, simply saying it seems to me that simply saying that they are pursuing this legally is giving the impression quite effectively to any number of his supporters that that, that both things are happening at the same time, right? Like if you're not digging into the news cycle and if you're inclined to be a Trump supporter, if you're not digging deeply, which is not too deep to dig, but if you're doing that, if you're not doing that, then um, the, the the rhetoric alone is enough to continue feeding that fire, that there must be some legal, there is, there's this implicit trust that if you say that there are legal grounds to challenge it, then there must be legal grounds to challenge it, although there are no legal grounds really on which to challenge it. So uh, the PR thing is doing its, its work. Um, let's, uh, Let's also look at what's happened as of the day of this recording. Um, the Senate Majority Leader of Michigan has headed to D.C. or has arrived in D.C. to talk with Trump. Um, what are they talking about and what, what's so disturbing about the fact that this is happening? Uh, right. So I'm not in the room for obvious reasons. So I don't know what exactly they're talking about. But my presumption is that they are trying to figure out some way to keep Michigan, the Michigan Secretary of State from certifying the vote totals, which have Biden ahead by a fairly healthy margin, actually, uh, in an effort to, right, so there, there are sort of two paths that they're trying to be on. On the one hand, there was an effort to keep uh, the vote totals in Wayne County from being certified up to the state. Uh, and so there was a couple of um, board members there who at first declined to certify the election, though their reasoning, I never understood the reasoning exactly except to not do it. Uh, and, then, and then they quickly changed their minds when, uh, when it was pointed out to them that they were two white folk and they were going to be disenfranchising hundreds of thousands of African-American votes. They didn't want to go down that road. And then, as I understand it, the White House called them and convinced them to go back on that again and they filed affidavits later on that night saying that they wanted to change their their vote for certifying the totals out of Wayne County. What exactly was said in that phone call is anybody's guess, but clearly it was meaningful enough to get two folks to sort of uh, agree to disenfranchise hundreds of thousands of African-American voters. So I will leave that there. But also, right, so then the president called, as you said, the Senate Majority Leader in for the state Senate in Michigan and uh, called him to the White House. And again, it's anybody's guess what they're talking about, but it would seem to be coming up with a legislative strategy that would allow the Republican-led legislature in Michigan to bypass the vote totals and the election and just name their own electors to go and vote for President Trump on December 14th when the Electoral College comes together. Now, again, there seems little legal pathway for that to happen. But it seems like they're certainly uh, discussing how to do it during this uh, meeting that they're having today. So, again, I, I think a lot of this is smoke and mirrors, and it's a lot of um, PR to try to continue the idea and the, the, the myth that this is a ultimately a winnable election still for Trump and that the results haven't actually been arrived at. How much that works outside of his 30 percent, I think, is anybody's guess, but I don't think it works very well. So, that, you know, that's that's kind of where we are with Michigan. It's it, it's incredibly disturbing. Right. On the one hand, that that two of the board members out of the Wayne County Board of Elections wanted to actually disenfranchised African-American voters, decided not to and then change their mind again and decided to uh, sort of certify in their own sort of affidavits that they wanted to take the vote away from hundreds of thousands of African-Americans living in Detroit. That is a disturbing sort of development that it happened in that place at that time. The other one is just blatant, right? That, that Trump is trying to figure out some way to 
uh, used the trappings of the White House and the Oval Office to move the majority leader in the state Senate of Michigan to use whatever sort of legislative angles and strategies they can to, again, disenfranchise the voters who voted for Biden over Trump in Michigan and, and essentially turn that uh, the duty of, of naming electors and, and who the electors will vote for over to the legislative branch in, in Michigan, which, again, is incredibly disturbing and ought to bother everybody, but undoubtedly will only bother about half the country. Yeah, yeah. Now, that idea of, you know, picking their own electors and not certifying results or overturning them, that's uh, that's caught some uh, some time on TV as well through Sean Hannity, his show. Um, this is not it, it, Ken Starr has been talking a bit about this. Um, bless his heart. I should have saved that for later in the show. <laughs> Uh, and so just for those following along at home, like this is being discussed in Michigan, but also um, these are just, again, it may be smoke and mirrors, but there are theories and ideas that are being bandied about uh, for other states, other closely contested states as well. Um, also this week, uh, Trump has fired um, at least one, if not more, high profile figures within his own administration, um, particularly uh, those who have come out and said that the election results were we're pretty okay. So, Jamie, could you tell us a little bit about that as well? Yes, Christopher Krebs, who works for or worked for the uh, the agency that was in charge of voter secure election security, sort of on a on a cyber scale, uh, came out earlier this week and said that this was the most secure election the country had ever had, and that was. I think we can all assume the kiss of death for him within the Trump administration, and he was fired by tweet some six hours later or so. Uh, again, a disturbing sort of turn of events. Obviously, everybody who works in an administration works at the pleasure of the president, and he certainly has the right and authority to fire anybody whom he wants to at any point in time. This one feels exceedingly problematic, if only because the person who's in charge of making sure that cybersecurity is in place for elections both declared that the election that we just had was secure and is now no longer in place to make sure that, say, the runoffs in Georgia are going to be equally secure. So this is a, a problematic sort of turn of events. With Undoubtedly, Trump is going to name somebody as acting chair of whatever that agency was. I can't remember. It's called CISA, but I don't remember what it stands for. Uh, but he's going <laughs> to name one of his sort of pro-Trump flunkies into that position as acting director of it until after the election in Georgia. And I, you know, I just it's hard to imagine that any good comes of that sort of a move. So, again, you know, it's just it's another week in the Trump administration when folks are fired by a presidential tweet for telling the truth. It's just where we've been over four years. And I can't tell you how excited I am to be done with this four years in the very, very near future and how terrified I am about the interim time that we're in right now. <laughs> now, this is true in many legal structures. Um, one can do things that are perfectly allowable and legal, i.e. firing somebody that's still ethically <laughs> gross <laughs> and, and, and uh, smokes and smells just like, um, uh, like corruption. So um, even, even when legal pathways are there for it. Uh, speaking of Georgia, though, Jamie, there was a big hand count there. Um, did they find uh, lots of evidence that the count was wrong or off, or how did that work out for Georgia? Yeah, no, they did not. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, right, so the, the final election totals had Biden up by 14,000 and change, and the election totals they got when they got done counting them all the first time around were 14,000 and change. I think the vote totals slid maybe three or 400. I don't remember the exact amount, but it was certainly not enough to either claim massive voter fraud or turn, turn Georgia back to red. So that was a nice tax-sponsored waste of time for the state of Georgia. Uh, I think that story is more interesting to me than all the other ones actually combined because you have a totality of GOP folks in every single position in Georgia that would matter, right? So mm -hmm. the the Brian Kemp's obviously the governor of Georgia. The lieutenant governor is a Republican. The secretary of state is a Republican. And their two Republican, sitting Republican senators are calling for the Republican secretary of state to resign because an incredibly secure election happened and they didn't like the results. Again, you can call for whatever you want to do and that's 
you're as a senator, you can use your bully pulpit to say whatever you want. At the same time, um, this all just feels smarmy, right? That that folks are calling for other folks to be fired, and and in doing so. I know that the Secretary of State has gotten death threats. They've had to add security to his detail because of the sort of the venom that comes out of that side of the political world. Um, and so it's just, it's just a bad situation all around. Uh, and, and, and it's absurd. Like, it's absurd to think that there's this massive sort of voter fraud campaign undertaken by the governor of Georgia, who's a Republican, the lieutenant governor of Georgia, who's a Republican, the secretary of state of Georgia, who's a Republican, and the whole legislature of Georgia, which is all Republican. So this is this is this is absurd, but it's also smarmy. Like, it just feels wrong. Well, my conservative evangelical friends won't appreciate the segue. But speaking of smarmy, we've been meaning to talk about conservative evangelical Christians. Uh, last week we, we referenced that, you know, I think in 2016, um, the, the totals, I think amongst cons- white, cons- white conservative evangelical men, um, the, the percentage of Trump supporters were like busting up like 80 percent um, white evangelicals in total was 76 to 77. So just a few ticks lower when white evangelical women are included. Um, given the turnout for Trump, again, there were record numbers. If you didn't listen last week or, or haven't been watching, um, there were record numbers of voter turnouts overall for the election and also obviously for Biden since he has more of those votes. But Trump even superseded uh, the amount of votes that he uh, totaled up in 2016. Um, and even that was at a record breaking number, even in the losing position. Uh, and I haven't seen vote totals yet or, or, or estimates or percentages of what that was like uh, amongst uh, white evangelical Christians this time. But methinks that that number probably stayed pretty steady. <laughs> um, we have no real anecdotal reason or, or evidence to suspect any less. So let's talk about that for a minute, especially given that just the voter voting totals were even higher this time around. We are we love to talk politics. We, we love to do it from the perspective of faith. Um, it's our background. It's a lot of our work, um, part of who we are. What are your thoughts, Jamie? And let's just start broadly about this ongoing, seemingly stronger than ever political alliance between major significant portions of the white evangelical Christian community and the GOP in light of Trump and, and what he stands for. It was disappointing. Disappointing is not the right word. It was surprising to me that they all sort of gathered around in 2016, 2015, 2016, when you had sort of evangelical darlings like, you know, Ted Cruz on the stage as well, as repulsive and repugnant a person as he might be, he is a darling of the religious right, and he got no traction with them whatsoever. And so it really, from it was starting in 2015 that, that they started to flock around the candidacy of Donald Trump, and I think that it's going to take sociological and theological dissertations to be written to unpack that psyche completely right to to sort of dive into the mind of the evangelical who decided to sort of put all that they espoused all that they believed all that they thought about the world and and put all that to the side in order to support somebody who by all accounts was a religious a moral immoral and seemingly, not seemingly, absolutely pandering to them every step he could get along the way. I will remind you that he stood in front of Liberty University and said two Corinthians, and he <laughs> and he was only quoting that passage because the the translation that he had included the word liberty in it. Like if you can't tell a, a grade one pandering session like that, then you kind of deserve whatever you get afterwards. But again. I, <laughs> That whole community of folks, or at least the vast majority of that community of folks, was able to set aside whatever sort of moral quandaries they had with a person who actively um, bragged about sexually assaulting women and thought that this guy was hunky-dory and not only supported him but ravagely supported him throughout the 2016 campaign and really showed no signs of abating in the 2020 campaign. So this is sort of – this is just where the church – or at least the evangelical church has arrived. And I don't know that you can put the genie back in the bottle after this. Like, I just don't think once that bell has been rung, it can be unrung. And I I think that you're going to have profound impacts on 
both the evangelical church and the capital C church moving forward by younger folks who look from the outside into the church and say, hang this. I don't need that sort of, I neither need that, that kind of theology nor that kind of hypocrisy. And so I'm going to go it on my own, right? And so you're, you have, already have an issue with spiritual nuns sort of blowing up in those younger generations that kind of come before ours or come, come after ours. Uh, <laughs> and, and this is only going to exacerbate that problem. Like, I'm convinced of that. And so I don't know where that really leaves folks who aren't in that school of thought, who never have been in that school of thought, who can't get there theologically in our school of thought. And, and yet we're going to be lumped in with them. Like the capital C church is going to be dragged down by the, by the, the actions and the support of Donald Trump by the evangelical church. And so that's just where we are now. And I don't know. In fact, I'm kind of thinking through writing a book about the church post-Trump just because I think it's going to have such a profound impact on what it means to be church in America after this. Like, can you be a Democrat and be a Christian? Can you be a liberal and be a Christian? Or are all the evangelical sort of folks going to get lumped into capital C Christianity and everybody else sits on the outside looking in? I think those are open questions and I don't really know the answer to them but I think the next five years will tell us I think that's interesting I think about that a lot like one of the caveats uh, of the question you just asked is um, to what extent do conservative evangelicals consider mainline and left-leaning Christians to be part of the church anyway um, now you may have some in an, in an apolitical context that would surely say oh well of course Methodists and Episcopalians and PCUSA folk etc cetera, etc cetera, are part of the church capital C but when you really start hammering away below the getting below the surface of a comment like that in terms of the specifics of our theologies and our moral and political leanings are there a lot of evangelicals who think that our brand of Christianity is lesser than or tainted or not part of the pure gospel? I would say, yeah, I think there are a lot who would not hesitate to confirm that. So I just, I always hear talk um, amongst and within that community of just assumptions of who constitute the church anyway and we on the progressive side do not really factor into that conversation as it is um so that that stands out to me um there's another interesting uh, component of this um we've been seeing a good bit about the fact trump has been able to peel away what i think is I'm biased, perhaps, I think a, a fairly insignificant overall number, but that Trump has been able to pull off some number of conservative black and Hispanic voters. And I say insignificant in the sense that not that what they're thinking or doing is not important, but more so in the sense that it's not ultimately, maybe it's closer than I think, but not ultimately swaying elections or, or constituting a significant portion of those communities, at least in the black community. Nevertheless, um, it is not uncommon you know, to, to hypothesize that many black voters in the South um, can have more socially conservative views um, and yet still identify with the Democratic Party. So my brain just starts to meander down this path of what it means to think about what, what, was hap- what is happening in some of the places. Um, let's just let's bracket the Hispanic community for a minute, but in the black community if if and when trump is able to peel off some of those voters um is it because there is a or is it related i won't say because is it related to an underlying conservative theological vision that's already there for some of them and there and with some of the conservative um, social stances that come with that and the last caveat i'll say and i know you've got a response uh to this line of thought um is that living living in the Delta has made me ask this question when I probably would never have asked it before. Um, that I've seen, of course, a predominant number of people in the community would vote Democrat and not think twice about it. Um, but things get a bit more messier uh, when you start to talk to some folks. And it, uh, so I'll just leave it there. Um, what are your What are your thoughts on that? Right. So I think that again, there's no sort of monolithic community of folks, not even like black men, right? So, uh, so I think there are a number of reasons why he peeled off some, though, let's be clear, not not a great number and certainly not a number that 
that turned any elections or any states for that matter. Right. But so, right. So there is, there's certainly a conservative Christian kind of wing of the church, right, of whom some may have swung over to Trump. Like, again, I think that's a pretty minuscule number. Uh, the other the other group that I'm looking at is that younger, for lack of a better word, hip-hop generation, right, where where in the weeks that, that preceded the election you had um, 50 Cent and Cube. Ice yeah. Cube <laughs> and, right, and Lil Wayne and some other guy that I never heard of uh, all all come out in in favor of of Trump for various reasons, right? So Ice Cube had been working with him on some kind of a plan for the African American community, and Fifty Cent didn't like the Biden tax plan <laughs> because it was going to cost him more money. <laughs> and uh, uh, Little Wayne, I think, was trying to I don't know gin up publicity for the Carter Six or whatever's <laughs> coming next for him. Uh, so right, so I but I think that. But for but those guys do carry some amount of influence and sway over a portion of the African American population. Again, it's a sliver yeah. of the community and not a huge one. Uh, but I think there there are some who right. So for the first thirty five forty years of rap history, Trump was was an icon in the in the most positive sense, right? So he was a New York hustler who was. Who knew how to break the rules and was a billionaire and could throw his money around and his power around. And so for especially those in kind of the mainstream hip hop community, those were all aspirational mm-hmm. goals that they all wanted. Right. That, and so there is that portion of the community that I think is still for whom that icon sort of uh, symbolism still has currency and still has power and so when your little wanes and your ice cubes and your uh, 50 cents and like i said that other guy that i can't whose name i can't remember right when they come out and little wayne has on his or is sitting there doing the trump thumbs up with trump like for most in the world and in the african-american community especially that looks absurd right but there is a there is a portion of that population again a small one that for whom that iconography of Trump in before he sort of came down the golden escalator um, still, I think, has some degree of power and sway and currency in that community. That's, I don't know. I, I think, again, there's going to need to be sociological studies done on what exactly moved that 5% of, of African-American voters over to Trump. I, but that that's sort of my stabs in the dark at what could have happened. Yeah, that makes total sense to me. Um the last thing I wanted to say before we wrap up this segment uh, about the evangelical church, the white evangelical church in particular, is I, I don't know um, on my on my most cynical days, I don't know how much different this uh, the demonstration of evangelical support for Trump over the last four or five years, how that really breaks from tradition, if at all, from the white conservative evangelical church as this existed in the United States for most of its history. Um, without, of course, some occasional nuance in there. Um, uh, that's a history that uh, you and I both have written about and know about. Um, and what, what I mean by that is looking back to patterns um, amongst white evangelical voters in the South, especially that have supported, um, if not the vulgarity of the ways that Trump might frame certain things, but still supportive of some of the things that Trump has taken, uh, put, put upon himself as being the savior of. So I don't, uh, I just find myself not thinking that, um, or I find myself thinking that this is not too incredibly different than what, um, than what evangelicals have shown us over the years, white evangelicals in terms of what they prioritize and what they are looking for, especially the last 40 or 50. But if we're looking at things around like issues of race and inclusion and acceptance of others and xenophobia, et cetera, et cetera. Um, not that white liberals have always gotten that right, but in, in the grander scheme of things, at least ideologically, we've tended to be uh, to gravitate toward those better angels rather than not. Um, I think I'm just thinking back to something you had said a moment ago. I think what was 
what was so shocking was that evangelicals would choose someone like Trump when they had in 2015 and 2016 in the primary season a whole buffet of other Republican candidates who were kinder in speech, who knew that theological biblical world much better than a two Corinthians Trump knew it, um, who may have talked about race or did talk about race or issues of immigrants, but did so at least under the guise of being a little compassionate. Uh, Whether we believe that or not is another question but just did not do it in an, in an explicit and as vulgar of a way as Trump has done. Uh, that's the surprise, I think, for me, not, but not that they continue to gravitate toward that type of politics and that vision of America and the Christian intersection with that, or how they interpret Christianity as intersecting with this sort of like Christian nationalist vision of what America is supposed to be. Yeah, you know, I think about... Um... In my dissertation, there's a chapter on the the reorganization of the Klan in the you know the twenties and early thirties, and and part of what they did was they depended upon primarily white Protestant pastors to bemoan sort of the liberal urban area. And, and and raise up the kind of moralistic South uh, in which uh, in which you know uh, white folks still had Jim Crow laws and and African Americans knew their place and and there wasn't none of that city talk going on uh, that suggested some sort of equality uh, and I, I you know that has always sort of been a strand in first white Protestantism but then sort of taken over by the evangelical tradition and what Trump did which was really amazing in a lot of ways was he took that same perspective and and was able to both be from New York City, sort of the cesspool of cesspools for a lot of that community, uh, and also point outside of the community into those rural areas where where you had those uh, folks who lacked college educations and where you had very, very sort of conservative religious ideations. And and was able to bring all that together into a coalition. And I I still remain amazed that no other candidate was able to to string together those folks in a more um, honest, authentic way than was Trump. But but again, when mm-hmm. you're when 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 truth is sort of optional and, and certainly malleable, um, like you can say whatever you want to a group of folks. Like it doesn't matter if it's true or false or otherwise. Like you can just say what they need to hear at any given moment, and if enough folks go along with it, then you've got a coalition. And that's, I I continue to come back to that sort of image of the rural areas of the country and versus the urban areas, uh, and and sort of still thinking through what that coalition looked like during the Trump era, which mercifully I think is now maybe over. Jamie, we're moving along now to our Bless Their Hearts portion of the show in which we muster all of our Southern passive aggressiveness and bless the heart of somebody who has recently appeared in a less than favorable light, uh, with the caveat that we always also reserve the right to bless someone's heart in a genuinely positive way, as Southerners sometimes do, if we should so choose. So, Jamie, whose heart are you blessing today and why? Okay, well, there's no danger of the latter this week for me. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm actually bringing to, to, to you a repeat receiver of blessing because I would like to bless the heart of one Rudolph William Lewis Giuliani and, and the, the state that he has found himself in. I, I'm sure most of our listeners will have seen this by the time this goes to, to air. Uh, but yesterday he held a press conference of sorts in which he laid out the new legal strategy for contesting the election out of the Trump campaign. And the room was so small and so packed with reporters, by the way, none of whom were wearing masks, that the, 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 the room was just, uh, the, the Giuliani started sweating just profusely. And, and I guess he had just colored his hair this uh, that day, because what you ended up with was sweat, beads of sweat dyed with hair dye just running down his temples. 
And it was certainly the most absurd thing I've seen in American politics in a long time. And it, it struck me that this was somebody who went from being the the lead attorney in the Southern District of New York and really a, a good attorney taking on like mob figures and and political criminals and bankers and fraud and and went from that to being the America's mayor after 9-11 to just being a complete and utter buffoon in the Trump era. And I, you know, and so I, I guess I offer this both sort of in a snarky way and in a, you know, an authentic way. Like, really, bless your heart, Rudy Giuliani, because, woo, the mighty have fallen. And I, I surely we have reached the bottom for you, though, if there's another Borat movie coming out, maybe not. We'll see. <laughs> and that'd be hard to get lower than what I watched the Borat movie. And uh, <laughs> my question was not... Um, I mean, the what what was what you could see on the video was disturbing enough. But <laughs> I just the bigger question was, how in the world does this man get caught up in stuff like this? Like this actually happened, you know? Like and he gave obviously gave permission for himself to be filmed that way. That's getting off topic. Anyway, yeah, bless your heart, Rudy Giuliani. Um, that's all of that is just something else. Um, my uh, my blessing of the heart today is going to be more in that genuinely positive sense um, that we do occasionally in this segment. And I am uh, blessing the heart of a, of a, of a cadre of people, um, Sturgill Simpson and Jason Isbell, musicians that we both know and appreciate. Um, and a few others um, were, were, were quick to provide commentary on the recent Country Music Awards uh, television show. Um, in light of the fact that during their in memoriam section, which they highlight um, musicians, uh, people who help with the recording process, uh, um, songwriters, etc., anybody who's part of the music industry, uh, people who have passed away who have played a significant role, um, they failed to give any honor or mention to John Prine during this time of the show. And uh, he just was left out of it. We don't know inadvertently. We don't know if there's any reason behind it at all. But anyway, he was. And uh, Sturgill Simpson, Jason Isbell, and others were quick to come out on social media and to critique um, this uh, oversight or intentional neglect of John Prine in light of his passing within this past year um, from COVID-related complications. And so we uh, I bless the heart of these gentlemen for remembering John Prine, somebody who we both love and enjoy, you and I, Jamie, um, and who is uh, definitely a strong figure on the on the, the country music scene um, and play, has played a role that we have both talked about as being meaningful to us, as being sort of that, um, I don't know what to call it, but this kind of alternative take to what sometimes is conceived as um, traditional country music. And so we remember John Prine, of course, but bless Sturgill and Jason Isbell, who we both enjoy for standing up and saying what they said. And on that note, Jamie, we'll wrap up our segment. Listeners, please remember that if you ever have suggestions for whose hearts we should bless, feel free to let us know on Facebook or Twitter. Um, we look forward to hearing from you. In our second segment, let's turn our attention to more election-related things. I want us to talk a little later about what this all means for the upcoming Biden administration and how this might be a challenge uh, for what he hopes or plans to do. But before we get back to the Democrats, let's look at the Republicans a little bit more. Let's follow back first to a topic that we brought up last week. Uh, a week later and further past the election, uh, what are you... I think this is going to be an ongoing question for us to, to talk about over the next coming several weeks. Um, what, are you, what are you thinking Trump might do? Is he given any additional signals this week? And I don't want to just, I don't want to spend all of our time just speculating about Trump's mind, but I, I mean so more on the, the political scale um, of what his, his interactions might be with the general public and with uh, the political processes of our country. So uh, what are you thinking about that right now? Well, let's bracket this out a little bit because on the one hand, because I, I just got done reading an article about his legal peril, which seems to be pretty substantial at this point. Um, though mm. a lot of it sort of remains in the, the realm of the unknown, but it seems like there is at least a fair amount of danger that he's going to be facing, not just misdemeanor sort of charges, but eventually felony charges as well. Um, and, and, 
And so I want to sort of set that aside because there's one path in which things get very, very dark for him very, very quickly. And he never, ever enters the American political arena again. Let me interrupt you there, Jamie, uh, before we get on to the less dark path. (laughs) Um, Could you sketch out just a little bit more about what some of the concerns are around those potential um, upcoming legal troubles in broad strokes? So his biggest issue is that Michael Cohen has gone state's evidence and actually served a jail term in order to do so. Uh, so so I think that if he has bodies buried, which I, most folks, even Trump supporters, assume that he does, um, that Cohen certainly knows where they have been for the last 15 or 20 years. That being said, there there are some irregularities that Cohen has talked about with the with banking fraud versus tax fraud right so trump would take his properties and when trying to get a loan would inflate their value and when trying and when doing his taxes would uh undervalue them so there's there's some degree of talk about both banking fraud and tax fraud which seems to um i think is is probably his most sort of um his most, the, the biggest threat that he faces. The other one is, um, and we this is a name we haven't said in a while, but uh, Stormy Daniels. And uh, I can't remember the other one's name, but there was another one. Uh, anyways, so, <laughs> uh, so Karen something. I don't remember. Anyways, so, <laughs> so the payoff that, that he, he, pro-offered through, uh, through Michael Cohen to especially Stormy Daniels seems to be legally dubious, both in terms of election law and in terms of business reporting. Um, again, that's one's pretty cut and dry, but there's not, it turns out there's not a whole lot of legal teeth behind um, election law. Though I will say that it's the same thing that John Edwards of our beloved state of North Carolina got in trouble for when he ran for president in 2008. So there are, there's some legal teeth behind it. Uh, but that's, that to me is probably the least troublesome of his legal worries. Um, and then there is uh, the legal peril that could be most problematic for him is actually um, a slander sort of case that's being brought against him because uh, the writer, E. Jean Carroll, who wrote an advice column many, many, many years ago, uh, accused him of of sexually assaulting her in a dressing room in a store in Manhattan in the 80s. And when she came out with her story, Trump immediately called her a liar. And, and so she has now sued him for essentially besmirching her good name. Uh, the, the peril there, though, is that in order to see that case to the end, Trump is almost certainly going to have to be deposed. And Anything is fair game at that. I mean, most things are fair game at that point, um, and, and and it will be made public too. So there is right. So there is um, there is a, a minefield of legal troubles that he's going to have to face if they all sort of come to fruition. So any sort of talk that we're going to do about that, let's bracket that minefield off on one side of the of the room. Uh, on the same page. Now, I said we were going to get to Biden later, and we're going to get to Biden in a more constructive, positive sense of what his uh, administration might look like. But one caveat of that that's related to this note here is uh, there's going to be, I would I would imagine that there might be pressure by some to do whatever, for Biden to bring um, any uh, authority or power that he can bring through his office as the chief executive uh, to bear on potential crimes or misdeeds that Trump has committed while he's been in office. Now, Biden has gotten out in front of that um, recently, like as of this week and said that he felt that using his uh, office and authority in such a way would not help to heal the divisions of the country and did not want to start talking about going down that path. Um, which sounds obviously very strange in light of uh, four years of Trump and his promises repeatedly to look into Hillary Clinton and all of these other things, like from you know leading up to the election and after in 2016. So grateful for that note from Joe. 
Uh, what are your thoughts about that just in general um, about what that would mean if the, if a Biden presidency was to go down that road? Do you think Biden's being prudent here um, with that, with that early sense? Yeah, I think that one of the things that he wants to try to avoid is the appearance that the presidential office is steering the attorney general's office. We've had four years of that or three years of that. And, and the nation has gone nowhere good because of it. And so I think he wants to certainly avoid the appearance, if not the actual practice of the oval office, trying to steer the attorney general's office. Um, so, so there is that the, I read an article earlier this week, I think it was in time that made the article that made the argument for um for biden pardoning trump which is an interesting i my initial react my gut reaction was hang that <laughs> but <laughs> but but after i read it the, it makes a lot of good points it takes any sort of criminal prosecution out of the hands of the federal government which would be seen by some as being um under Biden's control. Now, how much that is true is, of course, debatable, but mm -hmm. it would take that away. It would not uh, it would not uh, address any sort of state charges that Donald Trump faces, of which there are basically doubles for each federal charge that he would face. Mm -hmm. uh, and he would and if he accepted a pardon, he would no longer be allowed to take the fifth on anything. So in, oh. in his state, in, in a state case, he would not be allowed to uh, take the fifth. He would not be allowed to avoid deposition. He would not be allowed. Right. So, so there are actually strategic reasons more than just symbolic reasons for doing that. Now, I, the other side of that is of course, the symbolism that the president should not be above any other person sort of legally speaking. And right. I think that's, that that's the sort of teeter totter that Biden's going to have to sit on a little bit and decide which side he wants to land on. Um, I, I think he's probably playing it right right now. I, he certainly doesn't look like he's giddy about <laughs> sending the attorney general after Trump. Like that's that's not a good look for anybody. And and we've already had three years of that. So let's let's really not start going down that road again. And I think that tomorrow's problems will take care of themselves. I honestly do. Yeah. Well, let's talk. Let's broaden out for a minute to not just Trump, but the GOP in general. Um, following, I'm going to frame this up a bit, uh, pulling from I think a comment you made last week or the week before. Following the 2012 election, when Romney was uh, defeated by Obama and Obama was voted into his second term, the GOP, which is not just in this year or in that year in 2012, but as as parties do, uh, held uh, conducted a so-called autopsy, you know, of kind of what went wrong. And there was a lot of, of, of words that came out of that about uh, the GOP needing to be mindful about some of the language around um you know, disparaging immigrants and its relationship with people of color, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and that was, you know, presumably, possibly, maybe going to be a new direction going forward for the GOP um, in light of what was occurring and the energy that was uh, amassing around Obama and his now two uh, victories back to back. And then came Trump in 2016. Um, things obviously have changed. And so now we're at the end, thankfully, of uh, Trump's term and the GOP is faced with yet another round of this questioning of what does uh, what are our paths going forward um, what does it mean to be a Republican and what sorts of what sort of outcomes uh, and platforms are we aligning ourselves with and seeking so Jamie I know you've been doing some research on this this week um, what are you seeing and what are people suggesting are some of the paths forward for the GOP um, is there any light at the end of that tunnel? There could be. Um, it would require a, a few different sort of steps that the GOP would have to take. So let's let, let's sort of do this in, in steps. I think that it's possible that everybody with the last name Trump is going to find something to run for in 2022 and 2024. I, 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 and I mean that. I really think that... Uh, that you could see like a Don Jr. running for governor of New York. Folks have Cuomo fatigue after all this last year. Laura Trump has announced that she is considering seeking the Senate seat held by Richard Burr in North Carolina. Um, I did not know this. Maybe you did. But she is actually from Wilmington and grew up in Wilmington and went to NC State. I said, that was news to me as well. Uh, <laughs> I did not know. Um, yeah, no. 
Could you clarify who Laura Trump is? I feel like she's a lesser known Trump. Laura Trump is it's Eric's wife. She is originally from Wilmington, which I think surprises nobody and uh, went to NC State. And so she is talking about coming back to North Carolina to challenge Richard Burr in a primary. That seems short sighted to me because Richard Burr is a wildly popular politician in North Carolina. So uh, that may not be the seat to go for. Uh, But but so I, I really can see anybody with a Trump name running for office in 2020 and 20, 2022 and 2024. Um, so there, there's that side. The, the GOP as a whole, there is a real question for me whether Trumpism can survive post-Trump because every every movement needs at least a titular figurehead, right? It needs somebody who can, everybody can point to and say, we're following that guy because otherwise a movement without a leader is just a movement that's just kind of milling about. And I, and while there is lots, there, there are a number of folks who are Trump-ists, mm-hmm. right? And I say that different from from the GOP, right? But there are a number of Trumpists who I think would follow him off a cliff if he asked them to. Um, what they do with all that number and energy now, I think is a real open question because I don't think somebody like uh, Tom Cotton mm-hmm. could come in and, and wrangle that faction uh, in a GOP primary, say in 2024, right? Uh, Mike Pompeo, right? Mike Pence, right? Those I just don't see those folks who... Were Trumpy is all giddy up, even served in the administration, being able to wrangle that Trumpy kind of crowd. Um, so there is, there is to me a good chance that 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 unheard of folks, those unheard of folks who sort of roared into life in 2016, and I think voted very well in 2020 as well, may go back to just simmering under the surface and waiting for somebody who just throws bombs all the time to wake them up again. Right. So so that is Trumpism. In terms of the GOP, I really think that your autopsy is is dead on. Right. Because they did this autopsy found 2020, 2012 and did not feel like they had created a platform or a ticket that attracted a variety enough of folks to come into their tent. And again, we know that Trump sort of took that and said, no, no I'm going to crank it up to 11 in the other direction and and was successful in in catching lightning in a bottle once. Uh and so moving forward to me, that is the autopsy that needs to happen again. And the party to me, in order to be sort of long-term sustainable, David Frum made the argument that sort of there are two paths and I think he's right, right? There is the path of the Southern strategy where a combination of um, grievances and, and disaffected white folks, and at the same time, sort of trying to disenfranchise persons of color created the Southern strategy. And that is certainly a path they could go on. It's going to become less and less fruitful. It was very unfruitful this time around. And I think will continue to be less fruitful, but it is a path that they could stay on, right? And keep that sort of Trumpy coalition together in doing so. The other one is to slide to a center-right party and be not a conservative party, but be a center-right party that reaches out to sort of the, from said, the morally kind of cosmopolitan, right? Who's who doesn't care about those sort of Bible thumper issues that that have so often animated the GOP for the last 25, 30 years, but really is moving into a new phase where they don't care about gay marriage, right? They don't care about, they care less about immigration than they do about education. They, they, they can see a world in which women are leaders, right? These are, these are the sorts of features that a, a, a contemporary party could be built on, right? Mm-hmm. Fiscally conservative, morally if not liberal, certainly not sort of animated by its conservative base anymore, right? That's how you, you're going to rebuild sort of the suburbs that you lost over the last two years. Um, again, I, which way they go, I think is anybody's guess. They're still grounded in a lot of figureheads of that old movement, right? Mitch McConnell's of the world, um, those sorts of folks, right? Uh, there's a whole line of sort of dinosaur-like Republicans that are in the Senate right now who seem to be wanting to stay forever. Uh, and I think that generation is going to have to fall off at some point. But really, if you're going to build a party for moving into the future, you're going to have to back off sort of some of these hardcore Christian positions. But in doing so, do you lose that Christian base? I don't know the answer to that. But that's those to me are the two ways forward that the GOP can go. Now, 
which way they take again is anybody's guess. Yeah, I'll just add anecdotally that I, I want to be very careful about how I say this. I am professionally in a place where I am uh, hearing more of those, uh, the voices of the latter type of conservatives, the latter option that you mentioned earlier from the front piece. That's the type of conservative that is represented by people that I've gotten to know professionally who are you know, part of that world. Um, that you nailed spot on and like what they, how and why they identify as conservative and what they hope for out of a political party and platform. Again, the, 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 the more center right version that's not as caught up in matters of gay marriage, you know, who are open to women being in leadership positions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I guess because the volume has been cranked up so loudly by Trump and by the hardcore Trumpists, you know, to use that word, I'm nervous that it's not going to get back to the center right place. Um, I'll foreshadow my um, front porch musing for a bit. I was uh, watching the new season of The Crown recently, and it gets into Margaret Thatcher's 11-year administration and just some of her, the back and forth that she said she had with some of the conservative, her members of her own conservative party in Great Britain and some of the policies that she was putting into place and how some of the conservatives in her party were challenging her for what they thought were some drastic measures um, that she was taking. And they, there's this interesting exchange where they say, you know, like this is not conservatism, like what you're introducing or doing on some of the like really harsh fiscal measures that she was taking um, just rang very loudly in light of what conservatism has become to how it's been uh, represented by Trump and Trump, the hardcore Trump supporters. So I, I'm hopeful, well, I'm not hopeful, I would hope that the GOP would uh, would go um, in that latter direction. You mentioned um, that it will, it remains to be seen. I, and I can't, I've got to ask this question, Jamie, the idea that, you know, like where will the Trump supporters go without their leader, sort of, it begs the question of, do you think Trump is actually not going to be their leader anymore. I mean, he's not in office. Do you think he's gone? Do you think he's quiet? Do you think oh, no. that no, no, no. that connection no, he, that connection is severed such that they feel leaderless or rudderless? I don't know. Well, I guess the question is, no, is it going to be quiet? No. There's zero chance of him <laughs> going off to a Jimmy Carter-like retirement. No, there's there, there's no chance of that. He's not going to move next door to Jimmy in flames and, and help mow the lawn at the Baptist church. Like That's that's not what's going to happen. Uh, but again, does he start sounding a bit like uh, a ruler without a kingdom? Right? Yeah. So, right. So, so yeah, I mean, because he's talked about continuing to have those rallies and okay you can do that like that's fine but does it accomplish anything and i don't know that it does like so can he be a kingmaker maybe i mean maybe he can sort of tell his legions to go vote this one guy and they do i mean i think that's what the gop is scared of i think that's why they're all sort of continuing this preposterous notion that the election hasn't been decided yet but at some point don't at some point you have to be able to swing actual power right it can't just be all symbolic power or metaphorical power like it has to be actual power and short of running again in 2024 there's nowhere for him to go right there's a reason why former presidents don't ever go back into politics by and large it's because there's nowhere for them to go and it's true he's going to be caught in that place now does he go and start trump tv he probably does he start Trump super back? Absolutely. And is he a kingmaker in that way? Yes. But again, a kingmaker has to have actual power at some point too. And, and there is nobody else like Trump in the GOP. There's just not right. Yeah. Ever how much you might think that they agree with him sort of philosophically, there's nobody who has the combination of charisma and machismo and tethered relationship with the truth that that can sort of swing all those folks together in the same way that Trump does. It's just not. And so regardless of what Trump decides to do, I just don't think that he can uh, maintain that, that level of control over you know, 30 million people or whatever. Like, I just don't see that happening, but I'm, I'm, I could very well be wrong. I just don't see it happening. 
I guess theoretically, in 2020 could be a proving ground. To, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. 2022 midterm elections could be a proving. Let's say Trump gets all these things off the ground, like he is he suggested, or that people speculate about in terms of his in terms of his kingmaking power. That's what I mean. Um, if if Trump you know rally tries to rally the troops around certain candidates and they don't go anywhere in 2022, you know, in the midterms, that 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 could spell you know the end of his influence. Um, or it could be wildly successful um, and set him on the path for continuing to do so in 2024. And if he was to run again himself in 2024, that's certainly some things to look out for. We won't know until we know um, later on. But anyway, let's not give him any more airtime today. Um, Please. Uh, let's let's wrap this segment up. We just have a minute or two left. Let's wrap this segment up by talking about Joe Biden and his upcoming presidency. Again, wanting to unify the country. Um, Let's just get a quick word of what this means for him moving forward uh, in light of everything. So, we, I mean, Trump's unavoidable here, but um, in light of the numbers and all of the continued support that we have seen, um, at least through this election, we don't know how far beyond it we'll go for Trump. But at this point, uh, what what's Biden hoping for? What's What are some best case outcomes for him as he starts to make these transitions and, and is to govern? Yeah, I there are sort of two ways that this go to my mind, right? On the one hand, right, are there enough non-Trumpy Republicans, say, in the Senate to say we we want to get stuff done, right? We want to we want to accomplish things while we're in the Senate, and we don't we're not just here for Craven power plays. I'm looking at you, Mitch McConnell, uh, <laughs> <laughs> right? I, right? Is there? Are there enough of those folks to sort of form a coalition with moderate Democrats and and work with a Biden administration? There might be. I mean, I think that's possible. Um, the, the other sort of route that it could take is that for, I guess, it's 70 percent of the folks who voted for Trump who now think that the Joe Biden uh, election was illegitimate. You're never going to find middle ground with those folks. There's just there's mm -hmm. no way. And I don't even know that you should try. Um, mm -hmm. And so if you're trying to unify the country and all of us all sing Kumbaya, I think that is foolhardy. And again, you're trying, you're telling me that you're going to come to some sort of major agreement with the folks who, who think that like boxes that say ballot Biden ballots were like driven into the Arizona board of elections in Maricopa County while they were right. You're never going to get those folks. And they, it turns out there's a lot of them. So if that's your idea, Mail right. over from China. Right, right. So, <laughs> right. If that's your idea of bringing the country together, you're going to not do that. But if your idea is to sort of try to work with the more moderate Republicans in the Senate and the, the moderate Democrats and sort of form a coalition there, that could happen. And I think that it could be a very, very successful presidency if he decides to go that route. If he, if he becomes enamored with bipartisanship the way Barack Obama did, I, it's hard for me to see him accomplishing a whole lot in four years, but, but if he really just wants to put together a coalition of moderate voices, um, and not try to bring everybody along for the journey, I think he could get a lot done. Jamie, it's now time for our front porch musings or a time when we share something that has touched our hearts or that we have found interesting that may not be national headline news. Uh, so, Jamie, imagine that you are uh, back from your meeting with the president. He has leaned on you to overturn some election results, but you have stayed uh, strong and are not going to do it. And you're back on your front porch now. You're sipping a beverage. What are you musing about today? Mark, I am. Uh, I've been thinking about music a lot this year and really for the last four years, because I think Right. For my generation, there was uh, in the midst of the second Bush administration, uh, the Green Day album, American Idiot, that came out that really sort of, mm -hmm. uh, I think, brought all those sorts of feelings of, of angst and frustration all to bear into a what is a masterful and classic album. And, and for me, there's been a real dearth of that in the last four years. But I was thinking about it today. And, and so I wanted to lift up three albums this year that have really stuck with me and that if you're so inclined towards listening to hip hop that you should check out. 
the first is an album called Run the Jewels 4 by the band Run the Jewels or the duo Run the Jewels. Uh, Killer Mike and LP. Killer Mike is African-American. LP is white. And they form, it is my favorite album of the year, hands down. And it is, it's got searing, insightful social criticism and, and sort of cultural criticism of the moment, which I, I found very helpful. The, the second album is uh, the Jay Electronica, his debut album, A Written Testimony. And it is, production value is spot on. Like it is crystal clear production value. The guy switches between rapping in Spanish, English, and Arabic, which is amazing to watch <laughs> happen. And uh, it, and every, album, every track on the album features uh, a soulful, contemplative Jay-Z, which is a lot of fun as well. And then the final one is Streams of Thought, Volume 3, Cain and Abel by Black Thought, the lead uh, artist for the band The Roots. Uh, he's released now three of these Streams of Thought albums. They're all wonderful. They're all great. They're all insightful. Everybody should listen to them. So I want to lift up those three albums today in my uh, front porch musing and suggest that if you are so inclined to listen to hip hop, that you should check them out. Awesome. Thank you for those recommendations. I am musing today, as I've already alluded to in our previous segment, about the new season of The Crown. This is season four. If you've never watched The Crown, if you don't fashion yourself someone who cares about the life of the royal family, uh, which The Crown follows, um, I would say give it a try anyway. I didn't fashion myself that way either, but uh, the show is superb. The acting is wonderful. The writing is wonderful. Season four does not deviate from that trajectory. Uh, you get wonderful folk like Olivia Coleman and oh, I knew I was going to blink on her name. Um, Gillian Anderson. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Uh, many others. Um, the actress who plays um, the, the Queen's sister. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, Bellatrix Lestrange from Harry Potter for you Harry Potter fans. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't matter. Names on the tip of my tongue. You know who I mean when I when I say that. Um a ton of, of great acting in this it, it's following um season four starts off with uh you're, you're following prince charles and uh princess diana's the, the the beginning of their relationship and through uh many of the years of their tumultuous marriage and what's simultaneously happening throughout the late 80s early 90s of course is or the 80s and 90s is following margaret thatcher's um reign as prime minister during this time her relationship with the, with the queen um, so a lot of good political intrigue there for your political folk, uh, if you, you want to follow that. Wonderful acting um, by the, the person portraying Margaret Thatcher, also by Princess Diana's actor as well. Um, great show, great writing. Go check it out. All of season four is up and available. Um, and even if you're not interested in the prior history, you could jump in on season four if you're just a Princess Di fan or if you just want to go see what Margaret Thatcher was up to during these years. Uh, go check it out. Uh, you will enjoy it, I promise. All righty, good people. That's going to wrap us up for today. Jamie, as always, thank you for your time. Mark, it's been a pleasure. And if you are listening along, thank you for joining us. Please hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening and leave a five-star ranking if you should so choose. Remember that you can find all of our written work on Facebook, Twitter, and at ProgressiveSouthernTheologians.com. Friends, y'all take care. Jamie, you take care. We'll be back with you next week.